Governor Kim Reynolds approved a new tax plan on March 1st. How will this so-called flat tax impact Iowa's economy and future tax revenue? We sit down with a pair of economic experts, Ernie Goss and Peter Fisher, on this edition of Iowa Press. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com. For decades, Iowa Press has brought you political leaders and newsmakers from across Iowa and beyond, celebrating 50 years of broadcast excellence on statewide Iowa PBS. This is the Friday, March 18th edition of Iowa Press. Here is Kay Henderson. The Federal Reserve was in the news this week responding to inflation. At the state level, a batch of tax policy will be going into effect soon, and our guests this week are here to talk about the economy and economic issues. Peter Fisher is research director at Common Good Iowa, and Ernie Goss is a professor at Creighton University. Welcome back to the show, both of you. Thanks. Good to be here. Good to be here. Also joining the conversation are Stephen Gruber-Miller of the Des Moines Register, and Aaron Murphy of the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. Gentlemen, in a few years, all Iowans will be playing a flat income tax rate of 3.9%. Uh, I wanted to get both of your take on that. It was pitched as uh, something that's flat and fair, that everybody pays the same rate. Uh, Peter Fisher, will start with you. What will be the ultimate impact of that transition? Well, I think uh, it's important to start with that presumption that flat is fair, and it's also important to look at the overall tax system. If you look at taxes of all kinds in Iowa, income, sales, property taxes, gas taxes, you find that the existing tax system is not flat at all. It's actually somewhat regressive. People at the bottom pay a higher share of their income than people at the top. So the income tax is the only progressive part of it. And when you cut the income tax, particularly when those cuts are targeted uh, very much at the top incomes, that tax becomes much less progressive and the overall tax system becomes actually less flat. Ernie Goss, how about you? Well, Aaron, I think uh, it's, it's, it was necessary. We're talking about a system that's you've got to be more competitive these days in terms of your income tax. Now, why is it different today than it was, say, in 2017, December, when the uh, the tax cut, the reform, tax reform was passed, the bill was passed under the Trump administration? What that did is cap the deductibility of state and local taxes at $10,000, which meant that any high tax, high tax states, and I, I would argue that high, Iowa is a high tax state, 
is going to suffer, and suffer they did with people moving out, out migrating. And also then you've had a remote working that now individuals, don't, they can work in Des Moines and be in, uh, in Hawaii, time differences aside. But that's, is, so it's, it's a, it is a move to make Iowa more competitive, and I think it absolutely did. Now, uh, I think Peter makes a good point about uh, regressivity, and, but there, there's, if you really want to do something that about, uh, reduces regressivity in Iowa, get rid of your casinos. I mean, that's, a high, ta- that's high taxes on, on those who make less. Yet, so we don't hear anything about that. What about uh, lotteries in Iowa and Nebraska, and Nebraska's new adoption of casinos as well? I mean, we seem to talk about it only when it comes to income taxes, and ignore what it does. What we, in terms of uh, high taxes on the uh, lower income groups. Well, I want to ask about something you said a second ago, which was out migration. Mm-hmm. Another part of this tax bill would eliminate taxes on retirement income, mm-hmm. 401ks, pensions, things like that. And part of the stated rationale was they want to stop people moving out of Iowa when they retire. I'm curious if you think that it, the bill will have that effect. It will have some of that effect. In other words, that uh, and people will say, well, where do you get this that people respond to incentives? Where do you get this that people are motivated by increasing their net income, the, re- absent, the reduction in taxes? Well, how about the Old Testament? I mean, that's what we're talking about. I mean, that's, that's been around a few years. In other words, people, individuals do respond to incentives, and if you punish them in terms of taxing their Social Security, they will take the Social Security to another state, Florida perhaps. So it will have, now the question is how much. That I'm not certain of, but it is certainly, other states are moving. In other words, uh, for example, Arizona just passed a flat tax, flat tax in Arizona, and also, you're going to see more and more states doing that. So that, and we've got these baby boomers, and I'm one of them. You move in, you're, you're going to get your Social Security. Where are you going to take it? You're going to take it to Wyoming, no tax. South Dakota, no tax. So in a, these are no tax, income, no income tax states. And Nebraska is going to probably move to do the same in terms of Social Security taxes. Now, we have to wait and see when the session's over. But it, I think it's a good move. I think it... You, We've got to, states have got to get more competitive. We're, this is not the, that last century, that old century, or that mil, other millennium. We, we're talking about uh, being competitive, and this is a move to, be, I think, Governor Reynolds and the legislature made a good move here. Peter Fisher, what do you think will be the impact of that eliminating taxes on retirement income? Well, I think, first of all, if you look at what determines where people move, uh, there have been a lot of studies of migration, people in general and, and the elderly. Uh, climate is a major factor, being close to jobs if you're pre-retirement age, being close to family are the, you know, the more important factors. So taxes are going to matter to a small number of people, but if you look at the magnitude of the, of the outflows, it's you know, less than 1% of seniors leave the state of Iowa in a given year. We're talking about a pretty tiny uh, number of people, and we're trying to to deal with that supposed problem with you know a four hundred million dollar tax cut. If you look at just the the pension exclusion part of it, it's a very expensive way to address what you know I would say is is hardly a problem to begin with, since the the numbers are, are very small. Just to be clear for our viewers, Iowa does not currently tax Social Security benefits. Just to be clear, that was something you brought up, um, Mr. Goss. Uh, There is an 
a relatively new kind of tax break for retired farmers and that they can receive cash rent payments for the land they own tax-free. Peter Fisher, is there any research on what this might, effect this might have? Uh, if there is, I don't know about it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I suspect that is there because they're proposing let's exempt uh, pension income, retirement plans. Mm -hmm. And a lot of farmers don't have much. So they said, well, what are you going to do for us? Well, your income in retirement, you move to a nursing home, you're collecting rent from the farmland you still own. So I think that's why they did it. Mr. Goss? Well, given, I mean, this just comes from the Federal Reserve of Chicago. Farmland in Iowa increased from January of 2020 to January of 2021 by 30%. So we're talking about some hefty increases, and what's going to happen, of course, is the taxes, the property taxes on that. And in many cases, you're taxing uh, individuals out of their land in some cases. In other words, farmers are, I'm a little off tar target here, I understand, but it, it, it is um, that we're, farmers are not in the business of selling their land. They're in the business of farming and then later on getting rents. And so I, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the impact of that issue. But back to the point, the top, and I, this is coming out in my next newsletter, you take the top, now I'm talking back to the income tax, oh, okay. if I can do that, if I may. The top, top 10 states in the U.S. that have the lowest income tax burdens gained about 1.8 million residents, individual workers, between seven, 2017 and 2021. The, the top 10 income tax states lost about the equivalent. So we're talking about individuals really moving and they do respond. I disagree with what Peter's saying that th there are obviously more important, there may be more important reasons, but when you're on the margin, a thousand here and a thousand there, you're talking about in motivating, incentivizing individuals to move out of the great state of Iowa, Nebraska, South, well, South Dakota is different, no tax there. But you're luckily, luckily for Iowa, you, you're bordering two high-tax states. Now, the question is what happens in Illinois, what happens in Minnesota, and what happens in Wisconsin, the other, the other third state that you border. There are three high-tax states, and you've got to be competitive. I mean, you're, you're Nebraska, you're not competitive. I was not competitive against Nebraska, competitive against Missouri or South Dakota, three other states that you border. So we want to also ask, because this ultimately has a financial impact, which we got a first look at recently when the state's revenue estimating conference put together its projections for state revenue for future years and and we're already seeing the impact um, in, in a reduction in, in future state revenues and that number of figures to only grow uh, as the this tax cuts these tax cuts become more implemented um, legislators tell us that it'll be paid for the state won't have to reduce services is these taxes come to full these tax cuts come to full implementation? Ernie Goss, do you believe have they done solid math? Do we believe them? I, I, there will be cuts, in, uh, I would say. I think it's more proper to say the growth in the programs going forward will be less than it would be otherwise. And when you talk to, in some cases, you talk to local uh, and state individuals, and you say we're going to cut the growth. They're like, you can't cut our tax. We're not talking about cutting the taxes. We're talking about cutting the growth, and that's that's what we'll see here. And and just as we've all we in academics, all of us, 
whatever, we, we have to become more competitive. And I say state and local government agencies have to, and whether it's schools, schools have to be more competitive. The school systems have to be more competitive. By that, I mean we, there, we can't say there's not any fat to be cut out there in universities. There's, believe me, there's fat there. I, and, and I may be a good example of the fat. I don't know. Peter Fisher, what do you see when you look years down the road? Well, first of all, I don't think Iowa's a high-tax state for business taxes or individually. If you look at the reports produced by a couple of the major accounting firms periodically on overall business taxes in Iowa, we're right in the middle. We have been for a long time, and, and we still are. Uh, and if you look at the individual tax levels in Iowa compared to other states, we're... We're in the middle of the pack. We're not at the top. So I, I think the competitiveness argument is largely a rationale for cutting taxes on businesses and, and people at the top because that's what we've been doing. Whenever we hear that argument for the past 20 years, that's what we've ended up doing. But if you look at the income tax cuts in this bill, and the income tax finances half of the state general fund. And what we've done is we've taken 40% of the income tax revenue out of that revenue stream. And we can't do that without sooner or later feeling the consequences. Education is over half of the general fund. It's about 54%. K-12 and regents institutions and community colleges. There's going to be an impact on, on education uh, down the road. The surpluses have allowed us to postpone that. So the day of reckoning is three or four years down the road, and that's a long time horizon for a legislator. It's like, that's going to be somebody else's problem. Uh, but there will be consequences, and we're not going to be able to fund education at the levels even required to keep pace with inflation, uh, which is we, we haven't been in the last few years. Well, I want to switch gears to another economic issue that the state is looking at. Politicians in Iowa are talking a lot about the state's worker shortage. One of the things that the governor did last year to try to address this was she cut off federal pandemic unemployment programs early, including an extra $300 a week for people on unemployment in Iowa. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this because a Wall Street Journal analysis last year found that of about half the states in the country, those that cut those unemployment benefits off early added jobs at a slower rate than those that kept the benefits. I'm curious if, if you have thoughts about sort of what impact these kind of moves have on getting people back to work. Peter Fisher? Well, I think it's pretty clear they didn't have much impact. And I think there's, you know, there's some reasons for that. I mean, one is that you have to realize that less than half of the people who are unemployed are collecting unemployment benefits. So it's not the whole unemployed population that you're affecting. Secondly, uh, unemployment benefits at that time were pretty generous with the pandemic uh, benefits, but now they're back to replacing about 40, 45% of your wages. So you're not, people today on unemployment are not, you know, they're, they're making less than half of what they would if they had, uh, had their old job back. And then I think the other factor is that people have been leaving the labor force uh, it's not people sitting on unemployment, it's people who dropped out of the labor force and have only just started trickling back in again in the last, you know, six months. Uh, 
that's the real issue in terms of a labor shortage, and that has to do with a whole range of factors, originally child care issues, job safety issues, uh, now a variety of other factors, including possibly uh, some recent evidence that long COVID actually is keeping people out of the labor force. Yeah, Ernie Goss, your thoughts on the governor's move last year to cut those benefits off earlier? Stephen, I think that was correct. I think that, in other words, it, it, when you pay somebody more to remain unemployed, and that's what we're talking about, then what do they do to remain unemployed? And Now, the impact, now how many is the question? Uh, but the idea that it, that it has, that it didn't have an impact is uh, sort of goes against uh, economic theory in the sense of people are motivated by uh, you're paying them more to remain unemployed or you're paying them more to not work, then and there are some individuals that will not work. Now, the other part of this is we're, we're forgetting many other parts of the stimulus package passed by the Trump administration and the Biden administration, which weren't just unemployment benefits. There are others that continue and remain. And we're talking about most states, and I was one of them, states across America are still below pre-pandemic employment levels. If you look at February of 2020 versus today, we're not back there. What's happened is, a lot, as Peter's saying, a lot of folks left for other reasons. Not, and, and when you cut the unemployment benefits, that was not a big motivating factor for them to come back to work. But it was, it did in some ways uh, have, it did have some impacts though, because we know that food stamps were, food stamp program was increased by 50% the payments. Now that's, I don't argue against that. I just think we need to recognize it wasn't just unemployment benefits. There were other yeah. programs. Well, there's another proposal at the Capitol related to unemployment. Right. The governor is now proposing cutting off those benefits earlier, the maximum benefits from 26 weeks uh, to 16 week maximum. If you're saying that there are other effects, I'm kind of curious. You know, well, it's hard to argue that our surveys, we do two surveys a month at Creighton University. The number one issue is finding and hiring qualified workers. Iowa has a very low unemployment rate. Nebraska has one of the lowest in the nation. It's hard to argue that you can't find a job. I mean, we all, everyone, those who are viewing this broadcast are saying, well, wait now, my dry cleaners, they're closing down two days a week because we can't find workers. So what? there's, a, there's something wrong here, in other words, if we've got a sh waiter, lots of job openings, why aren't we, those job openings being filled? Peter Fisher? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I think there's, that's a question that's been puzzling a lot of people. Where, where have the workers gone? What's the sources of the, the job shortage? And I think there's been a variety of explanations, including, uh, you know, the inertia one. Uh, well, people finally were forced out of a job by the pandemic and discovered they can get a better job. People get a better job, maybe the spouse doesn't need to work, maybe they can get rid of that second job. So that'll show up as, you know, some people dropping out of the labor force. Um, but, you know, we've, we've got about, if the labor force participation rate were now what it was before the pandemic, there'd be about another 75,000 islands at work. Right. So the question is, why aren't... Uh, why aren't they in the labor force? It's and not they're collecting unemployment. They're not in the labor force. And to Stephen's point, lawmakers are trying to address this right now. They've taken some steps. Uh, I'd be curious to hear from each of you if a legislator came to you and said, how can we get these Iowans back to work? How can we help these businesses fill uh, these open jobs? Peter Fisher, what would you tell them? 
Well, <laughs> one of the things we could do is uh, do something about the child care issue. And, you know, that's been a, a broadly supported issue, but we can't seem to get anything done on it. The business community recognizes child care is a major burden to people coming back to work. Uh, and during the pandemic, for health reasons, uh, probably still to some extent, there have been trouble, uh, you know, getting those slots restored. But, uh, you know, we could, for a family with young children, that could, child care can take 20 to 25 percent of your, of your income. And Ernie Goss, I'm sorry, sorry, Ernie Goss, what, what would you tell a legislator well, you know, who's asking the Aaron, this is, uh, this is probably going to surprise you. I agree with Peter there. I agree completely. However, it's not just the, it's, it's the regulatory environment. It's not, there are regulations that have smothered some child care, ability to offer child care in Iowa and most other states. So there are things, that, there are moves that need to be taken to uh, remedy that, to make it easier to provide um, child care. And that, that is, I would agree, that, that is one of the major, major reasons that you have, you, we're not back to pre-pandemic levels of employment. Lots of questions, not much more time. Stephen? Yeah. I want to ask about the federal pandemic uh, relief money that's come into the economy over the past couple of years. Um, obviously, that's, that's done a lot, right, sort of shore up. There's been a lot of money circulating through Iowa's system. And I'm kind of curious what you think is going to happen because that's one-time money. When that, is that money sort of done running through Iowa's economy and people's bank accounts, or are we going to see a drop-off as, as that doesn't continue? Or what, what do you think the long-term effects of the stimulus will be? Peter Fisher. Well, we've got another we've got another year or so before all of the federal pandemic aid to state and local governments has to be spent. There's still quite a bit of that out there. Uh, the most of the financial assistance to individuals is is gone, uh, other than what counties or the state may may provide out of the, the assistance they get. But yeah, those effects are, are going to diminish, and I'm sure that was built into those revenue estimating council forecasts of, of declining revenues. I, I think one of the issues to, that ne that's very important right now is the cash balances out there because of, of, of these stimulus programs is quite large, and it will, as Peter says, diminish over time. However, what's not going to diminish in reaction to that is the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes. The Federal Reserve has gotten behind the, the curve on this. They should have been raising rates much earlier than this, should be much larger. So what we're going to see, in addition to the, 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 these, these balances will diminish, is higher interest rates. And we, got, we need to get ready for that. The Federal Reserve is probably going to raise rates by as much as one and a half percent more percentage points more by the end of the year. So that is, is a big issue, a head, headwind for, for all businesses, individuals, and the government for sure. Big issue for many individuals is when they go to the gas pump, they see that prices rose. When crude oil prices went up, surprise, crude oil prices surprise. are down. Why, why aren't gas prices down, Ernie Goss? <laughs> well, it, it's sort of, you know, they, they, do ratchet, they do go up faster than they come down, no doubt about it. But they will come down, ultimately. And what we need to see, of course, we, we've seen an administration that has been antagonistic toward uh, oil, the, oil, the petroleum industry. Now, it was admit up, he was, uh, the president was up front initially about the, his, his, um, uh, antagonism toward the industry. Now he's saying, well, I'm not really. No, he is. And so when you start saying 
how can you encourage more drilling, more oil, because that's one of the things we need, when, you, when the industry recognizes that's not long run. In other words, get, get me past the elections of November of, uh, of this year, 2022, then I'll get back to where I really want to go, which is to stomp out a petroleum, the petroleum industry. That's what's been, that's the stated goal, one of the goal objectives. Uh, that's not the long-term solution. You're, uh, solution there. You're right. The long-term solution is moving towards solar and wind and replacing fossil fuels, both for environmental reasons and for energy independence reasons. And I'm not denying that, but the idea that we're talking about, what are you talking about, base load? I mean, in other words, wind and solar at this point in time are not base load. We saw it in Texas. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have to have backup right now, so it is somewhat inexpensive. But we do have to move in that direction. I don't deny that. But you don't move in the, that direction as the administration has done. But today, when I'm filling my tank, do I see price gouging, Peter Fisher? Well, when the worldwide price of crude oil goes up and domestic gasoline producers' costs rise very little, there's some windfall profits for sure. Because their, their costs haven't risen, but they can charge more at the pump because the price of gas is, is higher. You know, they, because they can. You didn't call no. it gouging, though. I didn't call it gouging. I, I called it windfall profits. Okay. okay. <laughs> gouging. And now they're to, now the, the administration is talking about a windfall <laughs> profits tax, which is completely out. It should not be. In other words, that will not serve the industry, will not serve consumers out there. And if you're talking about this part of the country, we are much bigger users of those products because we don't tend to have as much public transportation. We drive greater distances. So when we pull up to the pumps, it's more expensive in terms of overall usage. So we have a special interest here in that industry. What happens there? My job is to tell you and our viewers that we're out of time for this conversation. Thanks to both of you gentlemen for joining us today. Well, that was <laughs> You can watch Iowa Press episodes at any time at iowapbs.org, or you can join us on Friday nights at 7.30 and on Sundays at noon. For everyone here at Iowa PBS, thanks for watching whenever you do. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com.